Welcome to a special Singles Going Steady. I'm Adrian Madoc. And I'm Steve McGowan. And today we're going to speak with the drummer, producer, manager, lyricist, and author Will Birch. And he's just written a fantastic new book. It's a biography called Cruel to Be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. It's out on DeCapo Press in the U.S. Welcome, Will Birch. Hi there. Hi, Steve. Hi, Adrian. It's great to talk with you, Will. And both of us are just, we just think this is a fabulous book. You've done an amazing job. And uh, we both learned so much from this book. We have lots of questions for you. Okay. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> We're going to start with um, when Nick is growing up. Um, he seems to have had a lot of influence of um, kind of uh, early American pop and like pre-beat era British pop. Do you think his upbringing um, as being the son of an RAF attache officer and, and living overseas for a time uh, helped inform him that way? Oh, definitely. I don't think it was uh, so much his father's influence. Of course, he was overseas because of his father's movements as an RAF officer, uh, and he was in Jordan and Cyprus and various other locations. Um, it was really the influence of his mother who wanted herself to be a singer um, uh, on, on the stage, but that was um, uh, cut short, really, when the Second World War broke out and his mother joined the RAF herself, which is where she met Nick's father. <laughs> but she, she came from a musical uh, background or a stage background. Her own mother was a stage performer, early in the um, 20th century. Um, uh, the other aspect, of course, was that these air bases where Nick's father was stationed um, also um, accommodated quite a lot of American mm -hmm. um, pilots during the war who, who were there to help the efforts, etc. And after the war, when Nick was a boy, and uh, these air bases would have social uh, venues and I'm guessing they had record shops as well and radio. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of American music being played that Nick heard. And we're talking here pre-rock and roll. So right. if, 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 you, if you think the rock and roll, I mean, arguably started in the 1940s, but if you take it from Little Richard and Elvis Presley, 1956 or thereabouts, mm -hmm. uh, Nick was listening to this music before that, so early 50s. I remember, the, I think there's a quote about him really being enamored of Tennessee Ernie Ford. Well, he always talks about the um, two 10-inch albums that his mum had of Tennessee Ernie Ford mm -hmm. um, uh, with songs like Fat Black, Louisiana, and those sort of songs. Yeah. And these made a terrific impression on him. But I think also, uh, I've, I come from a similar, I'm a similar age to Nick, and... Mm -hmm. um, I, I grew up listening to, my mum was a big music fan, and um, the radio was always on, And but I think it was also the romanticism of the musicians, the fact they came from America, and of course as children, mm -hmm. we were into cowboys, you know, the cowboy <laughs> movies, sure. and, and all these, so the American country music, you know, the guy often would have a, a Stetson on and he'd be strumming a guitar, you know, so mm -hmm. I think there was the imagery as well as the, as the sound of the music, it was a whole American thing that really, really gripped us, I think. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I think Adrian has a question now. We're, yeah. we're going to move on a little bit, just kind of go to... Um, you do uh, discuss quite a bit about um, Kippington Lodge and Brinsley Schwartz, and those are interesting parts of the book. But we're going to move forward to kind of the beginning of Stiff Records. Yeah, yeah. Since we kind of you know have our own DIY record label, we were fascinated by the beginnings of Stiff. And it seemed to me as I was reading that, that Nick was really an indispensable person, uh, that him throwing his talent not only uh, – as an artist, but as a, a willing producer, sort of a fearless producer, mm -hmm. uh, that he really is the, the magic elixir that, that made Stiff Records possible. Um, is, is, is that a, an accurate reading or am I over-romanticizing? Well, I think Nick definitely uh, brought a lot to Stiff Records. 
Um, I think really it was a case that um, Jake Riviera, as he became Andrew Jakeman, he renamed right. himself Jake <laughs> Riviera. He he and Nick kind of were plotting and planning for a good year or two before Stiff um, was founded. Uh, they they were kind of a loose end, really. They knew they wanted to do something, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. Uh, two things really happened. One was that in the UK, the, the band Dr. Feelgood uh, became right. very big on the live circuit. They came out of the pub rock scene mm -hmm. as well. And Jake went to work with uh, Dr. Feelgood as their tour manager. And as you know, the, the Feelgoods were playing high tempo, stripped down back to basic rock and roll and got a big following. And then at exactly the same time in America, you had the Ramones right. uh, doing... Uh, a similar thing in a way, although the Dr. Feelgood were rhythm and blues and the Ramones were playing high-speed pop songs, really, they both had that stripped-down monochrome attitude and look. Coincidentally, they played on the same bill at the bottom line mm -hmm. um, uh, in around, I think, 75. Um, and Jake noticed what was happening in America with independent labels, uh, particularly Berserky Records out mm -hmm. of San Francisco. And Jake knew Jake knew what was what was going on, and he could sense something was happening, and Nick could too. Mm -hmm. So they they formed formed a, a sort of double act really, in that Jake was the go-getter who would come up with all the ideas and the marketing, and Nick had the musical sus. You know, he could play a guitar, mm -hmm. he could sing, he could write songs, and he he had good he could doctor taste. songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could he could. And he had good taste. He knew what was cool and what wasn't so great, you know. Um, so he brought the style to it as well. So they they really were working as a team prior to Stiff Records. But then when the opportunity to hook up with Dave Robinson, who had formerly managed Nick, as you know, mm -hmm. when Nick was in Brinsley Schwartz, um, they they seized that opportunity because... The one thing Jake didn't have was the sort of inf infrastructure to get a record label going, whereas Dave Robinson already had an office and two phones. And he <laughs> said to Jake, uh, you know, you can have the other phone. And, uh, <laughs> and they formed a team. Um, but um, Stiff Records wouldn't have been what it was without the combination of Jake and Nick. Mm -hmm. And perhaps without the drive of Dave Robinson, who was a fearless, right. very bold entrepreneur. And and um, the thing was, though, that that um, I don't think Stiff would have... Uh, Dave Robinson would have always done very well. He was managing Graham Parker and the Rumour at the time, who were getting a big reputation in, in the States as well. And... Um, and he'd also, um, there were other artists that, uh, that Dave Robinson wanted to bring along with him. Um, but it was, it was when, they, when Dave hooked up with Jake and Nick, who, who kind of came as a, as a sort of a box set. You know, they weren't going <laughs> to do it individually. They were a real team. Jake um, a, was a fan of Nick, and, and Nick relied on Jake's uh, audacity and, and bravery to, to go where other managers wouldn't go. And Jake had all the slogans, as you know, the, <laughs> the famous slogans. Yes. Right. So really, it was, it, was, it was three guys, really, Jake, Nick, and Dave Robinson. But Jay, uh, Nick definitely brought to Stiff Records um, the musical edge that <laughs> might not have existed had he not been in the picture. Oh, yes, I love my label. There's a great passage that you have in chapter eight um, mm -hmm. about uh, it begins uh, by the time Andrew Jakeman met. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about meeting. Yeah, that when Nick goes to uh, San Francisco as a supposed roadie for Doctor Fieldgood. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. yeah. Could, would you mind reading that for us? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Uh, by the time Andrew Jakeman met with Matthew King Kaufman, Berserkly Records in San Francisco. 
Nick's interest in signing to an American independent label was starting to wane. My stock wasn't all that high and berserkly was the final nail. This is Nick speaking. One night Jake said, look, I think we should forget about this and invent our own record label. London is where it's at and we know all the key people in the music press. Writers like Nick Kent and Charles Shaw Murray were our mates and would write about us in the NME or the New Musical Express magazine. The power of the music press was considerable. We knew that if you put a word in Nick Kent's ear on a Tuesday, it would be on the streets of Preston on Thursday morning. We could bypass all the record company press departments who took two weeks to set up an interview. We were hanging out with the scribes and the good ones too. They all wanted a bit of it. It was terrific. We could set up our own thing and have it just the way we wanted it. That's amazing. And yeah, that's exactly what happened, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, those, those writers, I mean, Nick Kent on the NME, great right. writer, mm -hmm. and Char Charlie Murray were both frustrated musicians themselves. I mean, Nick, <laughs> Kent made, Nick Kent made a few records. Charles Shaw Murray had a band on the, on the, on the pub rock circuit. And, um, Everybody, everybody wanted to be in a rock and roll group. Sure, in, sure. Including the people who wrote for the rock and roll <laughs> papers. Speaking of rock and roll, the rock and roll band, Rockpile, Steve's got a yeah. wants to talk about that a little. Yeah, we we um we watched the footage. The, it was available on on the Amazon Prime for a short while. That little half an hour unofficial documentary of the first Stiff tour has that know. gone now from Amazon. Uh, it might still be on there. Yeah, we'll send you all a right. link. We'll post uh, it. No, I've seen I've seen it a million times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that well, that was all new to us, and we were mm, kind of stunned mm. when we saw it. And uh, uh, we have to admit that you know when they show Nick, it, it isn't officially Rockpile, but it's most of Rockpile, and Nick's playing his double-necked uh, bass guitar, and he's got his Riddler suit on, and they're just killing it. I mean, they are they are as good as the headliners i think and uh, we were just wondering that why what happened with why didn't nick embrace rock pile more i know it's kind of a complicated well just to just to pick you up then on what you were saying about the stiff tour when nick mm -hmm. was one of the five headline or sharing the bill really right. one of the five name acts on the bill mm -hmm. um he uh, he, Rockpile had already played together prior to that tour. I mean, early in 77, they did some shows. And then they kind of disbanded in the summer of 77. There was a famous interview in the NME where Nick left Rockpile and Dave Edmonds couldn't understand, uh, you know, why right. Nick had made that decision. And then they get offered, or Nick gets offered the stiff tour in the autumn, in the fall of 77. And... He's made up with Dave, so Dave goes along. Uh, Dave's going to play the drums, by the way, most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Nick's going to be on his double neck guitar. They've got a guy called Larry Wallace right. on guitar. Um, Terry Williams, the drummer, was also around. Um, the only non rock, the only member of Rockpile who wasn't on that tour was Billy Bremner. Okay. But really, I mean, I saw some of the dates on that tour and. Personally, I thought Nick's act, if that was the right word, was <laughs> was a bit scrappy. Really, um, uh -huh. he wasn't terribly serious. He, I think, he got sort of roped into it because he'd had some singles out on Stiff, such as "So It Goes" and uh, "Halfway to Paradise." Right. Uh, he, he had a name uh, as, a, as an artist, but what you have to remember about that tour is the the other. Well, you had Reckless Eric was on it mm -hmm. as well. Reckless Eric, bless him, who wrote the great Go the Whole Wide World. Right. He, he wasn't really ready to go out live. Um, but what you did have on that tour it was Ian Dury and the Blockheads and Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Mm -hmm. And they were both incendiary. They were both fantastic. Mm -hmm. And really, anything Nick did 
even with Dave Edmonds on the drums, was never, ever going to match the firepower mm. of the blockheads or the attractions. Now, who, is, it, who, is but, it true, um, is it true, excuse me, Will, is it true that he, Nick did a show with Pete Thomas playing guitar? Oh yeah, Pete would. Yeah, that was a funny. That was a funny thing. They would. They they would kind of um, play with the lineup every night. It was like it was almost a joke. So you'd have yeah. Dave on the drums, Pete Thomas, a drummer, on the guitar. Can he play the uh, guitar? Yeah, he could play. A... <laughs> no, he not, was, you uh, wouldn't he, want to play with a, when you've got Dave Edmonds standing yeah. there, right, or sitting there. It, it, yeah, Pete was as good on the guitar as Dave Edmonds was right. on the guitar. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but awesome. really, let's be honest, mm -hmm. what happened when that tour started, the original concept was that they were going to revolve the bill, so everybody would take it in turn to close the show. Right. But it became quite evident after about three dates that Reckless Eric wasn't ready to close the show. Mm. Larry Wallace, bless him, didn't have much of an act, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And Nick Lowe didn't want a headline, headline and close mm. the show because he wanted to get to the bar. Right. So <laughs> Quicker. He, 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 all he wanted to do, all Nick wanted to do was go on first at 7.30 and get off by 8 and go and have a drink. Right. <laughs> okay. Priorities. All right. Yeah. And, of course, Elvis and the attractions and Ian and the blockheads. I can't tell you how great both of those groups were. Mm -hmm. They were fantastic. Yes. And they battled it out, really. And, bo and both of those bands came out of that tour much, much stronger. You know, Ian Deary went on to have hit records yes. uh, in, the, in the UK. And, of course, we know Elvis Costello became famous mm -hmm. also in America. So right. that tour was, the, the, you know, that was where... The, the the picture was drawn really and nick was along for the ride but i don't think he took it terribly seriously don't leave me we're gonna uh talk a little bit about uh, nick's um record production right uh, we're going to skip down to the the part in chapter ten. Yeah. Um, could you read that passage? I think it's Chrissy Hine that's talking about um, Nick in the studio. Um, yes, I could. Yeah, this is page one eight one for reference. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Um, just to yeah, to introduce this, then Chrissy Hine had uh, become friendly with Nick uh, in in London. She'd been in London for a few years and um, really did want Nick, I think wanted Nick to produce this new band that she was uh, putting together, who became the Pretenders. And mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Chrissy Hind, and Chrissy Hind says, uh, Nick had his own language in the studio. Make it sound like dinosaurs eating cars. <laughs> <laughs> and use the word proper a lot. <laughs> Proper. After we left, Nick added background vocals. I think he also had Elvis Costello in the studio, who made a few suggestions. And Nick is singing on the record, which obviously thrilled us. Upon recruiting drummer Martin Chambers, Chris's group became the Pretenders. With razor blade cheekbones, skinny legs, skinny legs and all, they personified the look of the day and launched their career with the low-produced Stop Your Sobbing. Original songs such as Kid and Brass in Pocket followed. The timing was perfect. On the east and west coasts of America, the music of Elvis Costello and Graham Parker, with Nick Lowe as catalyst, was starting to gain traction, and the pretenders caught the slipstream. They went on to become an international hit machine as record buyers gradually caught up. A very big chunk of what the pretenders are would not have existed without Nick, says Chrissy Hind. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have got a band together. I might not have done. But meeting Nick was a catalyst for many, many aspects of what this band was. All roads lead back to Nick. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. What, you know, because the Pretenders are huge in the U.S. Yes, very big in the U.S. Probably the, big, the most uh, widely recognized name probably in the book. Mm -hmm. um, in the U.S. In the, for the U.S. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, the Pretenders, I mean, Chrissy Hind 
well, she's American, right? And right. and which is sort of in a, in a funny indirect way gives her a bit of an advantage. <laughs> um, I'm sure unintentionally, but she wrote such great songs at that yes. time, and the records they made just sounded beautiful. Yeah. So they were they were, they were quite a commercial um, proposition, the Pretenders. Yeah. Whereas Elvis and Ian Dury and even Nick were pro- perhaps a little bit more unconventional. Chris's stuff sounds very mainstream to me. Yes, it is. I, I, I think agree. you're right about that. It is time for you to stop all of Um, I, since we're doing a podcast, we're going to talk about visuals and uh, talk about um, Born Fighters, oh boy. The, the BBC documentary about Rock Pile. Um, and we watched that uh, recently, recently yes. and we were both struck at the very... Um, Spinal tap nature of the repartee between the parties, yeah. um, and and you know you you were friends with them at the time, uh, and I don't know did did that strike you as well or? Well, um, there's a lot of theories about <laughs> where Spinal Tap got their uh, not their idea from, but which bands were the most influential in informing that movie. Um, right. Obviously, British bands and uh, of the 1970s, mm-hmm. and you know, you hear people say, "Well, it was obviously based on status quo," and then right. somebody right. say, "Oh no, Black Sabbath." And mm-hmm. but but I remember I was in New York when um, when that movie came out. We were um, I was making a record over there, and uh, I was hanging out with the, the musicians who came over to do the album. It was uh, Billy Bremner and mm-hmm. uh, Bob, Bobby Irwin, who went on to play with Nick, and right. and uh, Bob Andrews from Brinsley Schwartz, or The Rumour, and uh, James Eller, the bass player. So those four guys and, and myself were in New York for weeks and weeks doing recording, and we staying at the Gramercy Park Hotel or the Gramercy Hotel, and Spinal Tap was playing in the West Village, and uh, every night we'd meet. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> every night for about a week, we'd meet in the bar <laughs> at about nine o'clock, and then there'd be after we'd finished in the studio for the day, and then somebody say, "Look at their watch," and they say, "It's ten to tap," because <laughs> <laughs> the movie would start at ten, and we went and saw. I think we went like four consecutive nights. We wow. couldn't Perfect. get over it, but. Everybody said, I think it was Billy Bremner who said, you, you know, he said, you know, that, that guitarist in the Spinal Tap, he, he, he was sure it was based on Dave Edmonds. Because, Nigel Tufnell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah. The, the, the hair. Right. Yeah. Did, that did look like the way Dave might have his hair at that time. Um, but we love Spinal Tap. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I don't think those guys have ever really fessed up, have they? On they've no. Never... no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the biggest state secret besides what's in Area 51. Right. <laughs> Is it yeah. aliens and who's the source of Spinal Tap? Um, yeah. We have a lot of, of folks that listen to us who are interested in the law. And that was the other thing that really came out in, in the, um, the documentary, the problems with... Um, with Dave's label and being tied so tightly into um, uh, Swan Song. And, um, you know, that that was really interesting to see all these permutations of rock pile records that did not come out under the name and, of course, only Seconds of Pleasure coming out under the rock pile banner. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, they were were touring uh, a lot. And then when they would get... Um, uh, sort of three or four weeks off from touring, usually in the in America, uh, they'd go in the studio and do some recording. Um, Dave, of course, was signed to Swan Song uh, and was committed to delivering four albums, roughly one a year, over a four-year period. And Nick um, was also making solo records. 
they both had to put solo records out, but they were made really by Rockpile. And in fact, as you right. see in the documentary, some of the songs could have come out as a Dave Edmonds song or a Nick Lowe song. Right. Right. I right. mean, Endless Grey Ribbon, they both mm-hmm. had a crack at that. And there were two or three others, and Billy would sing on some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, does Billy sing on Born Fighter? Am I, am I imagining that? Anyway, they would... Sh- they would share the lead. They would share the lead vocals, um, but really, um, this thing that you hear about, they couldn't record as rock pile. Well, they could have done. I mean, mm. it, this was blown up really. Okay. Um, it got them a bit of press and publicity, and it was an interesting story. Mm. But I'm sure if if um, if Jake Riviera had. Um, gone to um, uh, Swan Song or Led Zeppelin's mm-hmm. manager, uh, Peter Grant, Grant, and said, mm-hmm. look, you know, the band are really hot. We want to make a rock pile record. And hey, you know, you can put it on Swan Song. I'm sure mm-hmm. the deal could have been done. But they, uh, let's just say there were people in the camp who didn't want, didn't really want it to happen okay. at mm-hmm. that point. And then eventually... When Dave finishes his fourth and final album and delivers it, which is um, twanging, although that came out a bit later, but he'd finished that record. They were free, as they say, to make right. the, the rock pile record, uh, which they did. And um, then they broke up. <laughs> personally, personally, I thought it was very disappointing. Mm. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't stand up. Uh, yeah. to um, Labour of Lust. If you right. b- bundle together Labour of Lust and uh, right. repeat when necessary, was it? If you bundle mm-hmm. those together and, and and mix all... I mean, what a lot of people do for fun, they'll make up a rock pile record from those solo records. Like uh-huh. you, you know, in the old days, you'd make a, a cassette. I think some of the kids are still doing right. it today. Right. You it. could get a great... You could get the best rock pile album from, from cannibalising those... <laughs> Four or so solo albums. So when when it came to the, to the to the time to make the the big rock pile record, frankly, a lot of people were sort of tired of it mm. and um, fed up. I think, and and also they were road scarred. You know, they they were touring yeah. like crazy. Um, so they made a rock pile record, and then they they broke up. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really, what happened? It's a real, it's a real shame. Uh, we'd like yeah, to. Move... It, oh, it is a shame. I mean, I love mm-hmm. God. A rock pile. Well, yeah. it, was there ever a more exciting rock band on on stage? I, I can't remember one. I mean, they were phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'd they like were to... just absolutely great. His mind is not dwelling on beds of white. We'd like to move forward to the impossible in bird. Time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about the impossible bird and kind of the rebirth of Nick Lowe. Yeah. Um, and he had his breakup with Tracy. How do you say Tracy's last name? Tracy McLeod. McLeod. Okay. okay. McLeod. That seems to have set the the new point in his career. And uh, we know that she's a prominent figure in Britain. Um, could you explain to uh, us U.S. folks who she is and... Um, and then yeah, we have Tracy, something we'd like you to read. Yeah, Tracy McLeod uh, came out of university uh, in the uh, 1980s uh, as a young, um, um, I, I suppose, a student of media. Mm-hmm. And Tracy um, started to work for the BBC uh, here in London and got involved in some um, arts television programs. Mm-hmm. So they would, this would be a program that would at one minute talk about Hamlet and the next mm-hmm. minute talk mm-hmm. about uh, a poet, uh, the next minute talk about a painter, and the next minute talk about a movie. So they're oh. arts-based programs. Was and she Tracy, what, what they call a presenter? Yeah, well, she became a presenter. I mean, I can't remember the details. I believe okay. she started working in the back office on the production side mm-hmm. and then gradually... Um, started to face the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was when um, Nick uh, had put out the album, which was the one with What's Shaking on the Hill, um, mm-hmm. 
party of one. Right. Um, he he and his band also had Paul Carrick in the band. Uh, they got a, a spot on the uh, TV show that Tracy was presenting, mm-hmm. and that's where and when Nick met Tracy, and uh, they started to date. Uh, and were together, I, I can't remember now, maybe a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was during that period uh, Nick was really um, trying to get together his new approach, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved um, Party of One. I think it's actually one of his strongest collections. Mm-hmm. But he still wanted to simplify it even more right. and really take it back to basics. Mm-hmm. Bobby Irwin, the drummer, was a big influence, uh, as was Neil Brockbank, who uh, became the producer of The Combo mm-hmm. and various other musicians. Um, and it was during that period when Nick was with Tracy that he wrote a lot of that material. Uh, for example, you know, Shelley, My Love, yes, uh, he wrote, which song. was later covered by Rod Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, Soulful Wind, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that, those songs that ended up on um, The Impossible Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sadly, the <laughs> they broke up. Um, right. Tracy... Uh, in in my book on uh, Nick Lowe, which is I guess what we're talking about, uh, Tracy <laughs> talks a lot talks a lot about um, about um, living with Nick and mm-hmm. dating Nick and how she would come back home at seven in the evening after a heavy day working up at the BBC to find Nick on his third bottle of wine. Uh, <laughs> Listen, listen to this. You know, yeah. he'd, been, he'd been working on Soulful right. Wind all day, right. and he, even though he had had a couple of drinks, he he, he had it totally down. You know, right. and he would sing it to her, and she has to admit that it was just amazing. It was, you know, mm-hmm. and and that really also, although Nick had done some solo shows with just an acoustic guitar prior to that, that was also the basis of his ability to go out as a one-man acoustic act, which he still does to this day when he's not working with Lost Straight Jackets. And, and that was the, I think that was the roots of that, that period and that album, um, as you say, you, Impossible um, Bird. You have a great quote from Nick that I think really, really, um, you know, about when he's talking breakup. about the breakup, and I think it points to the direction that, that he's going in. I was hoping you would read that from Chapter 14. Sure. Well, this is Nick speaking, and he's talking about the breakup, mm-hmm. uh, 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 his breakup with uh, his girlfriend at the time, right. uh, Tracy McLeod. And Nick says, the breakup was really, really awful, but I found that this fantastic clear view came to me. I thought, man, I can write some seriously soulful stuff here. That's what I need. I didn't want to sing songs about being on the road again or (laughs) here I am in a bar. I wanted to sing some grown-up shit about being extremely pissed off because I am and I needed to put this across and really tell a story like a proper geezer, like (laughs) all the people I admire. There was no point in just sitting around listening to my record collection. You are going through this now, pal. Where is your contribution? Suddenly I thought, I can do this. Shelly, my love I only long to be where you are Shelly, my love Now and forevermore, Shelly, my love. Wow, that's that's pretty strong stuff. And he certainly did do it. Yeah, he really. Oh did, yeah, he? well uh, he did, and then of course he went on to dig my mood and right. convince oh, yes. her. What a great mm-hmm. records, yeah. Yes, sir. They're both fantastic. And I know on um, Dig My Mood, Nick uh, talks about his attitude to labels and promotion. Sorry, I hit the, the screen there. Um, and there's a great passage on Chapter 14 about signing with labels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nick, I mean, I have to say that um, even though it had been some years since Nick, Nick had had a, hit, a real hit record, with something like Call to Be Kind, he was still a name, and 
there were a lot of people working in the in the in, in London in England in the record labels who who would have signed him in a heartbeat i mean he still had a following in the music biz and i think they did get the odd offer or jake riviera who was then the manager right. did get the the odd offer but nick wasn't uh, keen and he 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 told me uh, this he said on the prospect of signing to uh, say Virgin Records Nick elaborated and Nick said if I'd signed a big contract I would have to do all the things that I'm unwilling to do in order not to be seen as a bastard you've got to do what they tell you to do you've got to go and sit on the couch in the morning it fills me with despair and do every crappy pop show and I'm not interested enough in it anymore I'd feel like a foolish old git no doubt at that time, labels such as Virgin would have been nonplussed by tracks such as Nick's cover of Ivory Joe Hunter's Stringer and Country Confessional, Cold Grey Light of Dawn, or the gospel tinged Lead Me Not, and indeed, You Inspire Me, the album's standout song. Written and sung in a style that predates rock and roll, it would have suited many vocalists of the Sinatra era. Nick, in fact, wrote it with his parents in mind and played it to them in the company of his cousin, Wendy Thatcher, and her husband, who were visiting from Canada. I certainly think that music and entertaining runs in the family, says Wendy. I remember us having dinner, and afterwards Nick sat at the table and played it to us. It was so simple and lovely. And as my uh, Mojo review mentions, because I reviewed Dig My Mood for Mojo, uh, You Inspire Me cried out to be covered by Katie Lang, and my hopes there is still time. You inspire me When my eyes begin to glaze You inspire me In so many ways When I'm on the ground You seem to know how to pull the blessings down and spread them all around. You inspire me. Yes, yes, very. I, th I think there's, uh, it's very telling that passage because a lot of people in America who are fans say, you know, Nick Lowe, why isn't he more famous? Why, why, why doesn't he, you know, but Nick's not really willing to play the game, is he? Well, I think Nick only wants it on his own terms. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, musically, he's got that. He can make whatever yes. music he wants mm -hmm. these days, and he does, and it's great. He but sure as is. regards a career and working, yeah, he tours a lot these days. I mean, he goes mm -hmm. out on the road a lot. But as for competing in the record market and... and you know, being asked to promote um, his music on behalf of a big corporation, he's he's done with that, and uh, right. he had a, he had a lot of that in, in the 80s, as you know, when he made all those solo records for Columbia, um, and he don't want to do it anymore. And uh, hey, that's fair enough. But in answer to the question, why isn't he more famous or more successful? Well. He's got to look to himself. He could have <laughs> prostituted himself, but as he as he said, he he doesn't think he's got the share gene. Right. You know, he's not like Elton John. He's not that kind of artist. Yes. Yeah. And 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 boy, that song you inspire me. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? It's just fabulous. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. I have to be careful because I know I I'm a huge. I'm first and foremost a huge fan of Nick uh, yeah. Nick's music. Mm -hmm. So if I come over as a bit sycophantic, it's because I am. <laughs> well, so, so are we. I well, think we so all are. are. <laughs> we're all we're all in the same boat. I mean, yeah. the man is amazing. He can do no wrong in my book. Yeah. Um, uh, as I read the book, I felt I really felt like I knew Nick better from your writing and and your quotes and and everyone you talked to. Now, I am actually British myself. I was born in Glasgow. And, oh, yeah. Uh, well, Scottish, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and my family was British. Um, I thought that Nick's relationship with his dad was a very British, stiff upper lip kind of thing. Mm. Would you read the passage about when, when 
his dad and when he passed away on chapter fifty. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick's dad, Jeffrey Drainlow, died in the early 2000s. And um, I write in, in, in the biography, Nick had always had a strange relationship with his father, who, like most men of his generation, especially those who had fought in the war, found it hard to express their emotions. He had spent much of his Air Force life away from home and therefore seemed to his son like a figure that only existed in the letters he wrote home and that Pat, Nick's mother, would recite. He certainly was a hero, says Nick, and I felt he was disappointed in me because I so took after my mama. I just wanted to stay inside and sing Lonnie Donegan songs with her and harmonize on each word rather than stand in a freezing cold garage handing him spanners while he changed the spark plugs on the car. The kind of stuff that boys are supposed to do with their dads. Although he may have been a disciplinarian, I can't remember him ever laying a finger on me, but he could be quite intimidating and distant, which probably stood him in good stead when he was honing his skills in the RAF. In fact, the RAF defined him. He would never tell me he loved me, and I could feel him stiffen when I insisted on giving him a kiss, even when he was an old man. I visited him in hospital when he was close to death. The nurses had had a go at shaving his moustache, but it was done rather badly, and I didn't have the heart to tell him. I remember our last words. I told him I loved him, and he replied, I love you too, old boy. Mm. Wow. That's very powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, dra- <laughs> yeah, yeah, D- Drain, um, he was quite a, I mean, I didn't really know Drain. I did sort of shake his hand once or twice backstage right. at some of Nick's shows, and he would, you know, he'd, he'd be standing in the bar with his his RAF handlebar moustache casting an eye around the room <laughs> slightly judgmentally looking at <laughs> long-haired people who had probably been outside smoking a reefer, you know. Right, and, uh, right. Uh, you know, but he had a tremendous um, presence. Mm-hmm. Drain, or Jeff, Drain, next dad, had a tremendous presence. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it rubbed off on Nick, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. they both knew how to work a room, you know. Right. When you feel you're all in And you've decided you can't win Tell yourself it won't be for long You're between dark and dawn yeah, there's something in the military that that, that working yeah. a room, mm-hmm. and particularly yeah. you know in his position being overseas. Yeah, and being an, a kind of an important attaché, you know, that had to be yes. in yes. charge of things. Yes. Uh, uh, in the present time, or, or or the recent time, you you describe Nick, or he describes himself as the two Nicks. Would you read the passage about the two Nicks? Um, um, sure. Chapter seventeen. When he goes out sure. to the court. Let me just find that one. Um, yeah. That's on page 330, I think. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it here. Um, this is where he's, he's talking about why, what, what motivates him, isn't it? Really? Right, this right. Is, yeah. Um, uh, this is Nick speaking. It's not the money, says Nick. I've got to do it. Sometimes it confuses my family. People have loved me and I have loved in return. They are sometimes confused and hurt by the fact that they seem to come second. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. Obviously, if there was a fire, I wouldn't save my guitars. But there's something in me, I can't help it. But I have to be two people in order for me to be a responsible husband and parent, and less selfish than I really need to be. We've all seen people in the music business who treat their families like shit, and I didn't want to be one of those people. But I really can understand why that happens. You have to discipline yourself so that you don't cause mayhem in other people's lives, especially people who love you and realize that you're sort of elsewhere for quite a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Go on, 
as you this book is beautifully researched um, yes extensively you know, I'm researched. An, an academic in, in, in my day job mm-hmm. so I you know I don't want to give the impression that it's an academic book I mean it's a very readable uh, wonderful read mm-hmm. but it's it's um and and you talked about worrying about seeming sycophantic but I think it's a very straightforward honest right. well-documented depiction well-rounded mm-hmm. um Thank and I was you. You must have done a a lot of listening to Nick, not only over, you know, the past 40 years, but in preparation uh, for uh, writing. Is there a song that that really sort of stepped up and and made itself known that you're like, wow, that's a great song. I'd kind of overlooked that. I think there may be a number of songs that in the the rush of rock and roll and dashing here, there and everywhere, one can easily overlook and then you drill back into say an album 20 or so years later and you think oh i didn't really give that one a chance Mm -hmm. um i i I find it hard to to name uh, one song Uh, i mean my i have to say my favorites of nick's yeah, I say favorites. I love them. nearly all of them. There's a couple. <laughs> right. There's a couple I don't like very much, but certainly, <laughs> certainly the majority of my love. And there's a few really special ones. I like it when he really pushes um, the envelope. When he really, I mean, for example, um, I trained her to love me. Yes. Right. Is, mm-hmm. right. is I mean, where does that come from? <laughs> exactly. Well, like a psychologist could analyze it and probably uh, say it's a, a very conceited um, <laughs> proposition. Um, but it's so funny. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think the I think now I listened to Shelley, my love, the other day. I hadn't listened to it for a while. That is really, really, really good. That mm-hmm. was written for Tracy McLeod. It was originally going to be called Tracy, My Love, but <laughs> they both agreed that didn't sing very well, so it became right. Shelley, My Love. Um, but, the, but really thinking about it, I reckon House for Sale is a great song. Mm, yes. Um, um, and there's a couple on that album. Um, um, I Read A Lot is another one. Yes. Those ballads <laughs> that he was writing you know, 10, 15 years ago, are, are really strong and I think will live quite a long time. I think they'll get discovered. I think down the line, some very, very good vocalists will find that material. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's going to happen. But it might be a while yet until the right singers come along. House for sale I'm moving out I'm moving on This bird has flown House for sale I'll tell you where to redirect my mail Right, it's certainly, um, there's there's some, like the Great American Songbook, it's like the Great World Songbook <laughs> that, that yeah. definitely have pages in. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing, I mean, a really good vocalist could perhaps do a collection of his songs, but I don't know how, I don't really know how the music industry works these days. (laughs) Nobody does. Nobody does well. (laughs) It's all a bit of a mystery. Um, You you seem to have to have a coffee shop now to sell any music, right? and I know you've done a lot of interviews um, in uh, the promo for this book and had lots of questions, and we asked you a lot of questions. Um, is there a question that you wish people had thought of to ask you um, that, that you really want to answer or uh, that has gone unasked? Uh, is there a question I wish someone would, someone would yeah. ask me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What question have, have, has no one had the insight to ask you? Oh, I'd have to really think about that. Um, well, I was quite pleased um, that I, in my research for uh, the biography of Nick Lowe, uh, I uncovered 
um, his family history. Right, mm-hmm. right. And uh, it was a secret. Um, when, when you're researching somebody in depth and you're researching their genealogy, um, and sometimes over a period of years, and a similar thing happened when I did my biography of Ian Dury a few years ago. Um, when you're deep in that research, it, you are, until, until you publish the book, you're the only person in the world who knows that stuff. <laughs> you're literally the only person on the planet. Now, I'm not saying this is, you know, world-shattering news or it's, it's significant, but in, in terms of uh, a musician like Nick, it is kind of interesting th- th- where he, he came from on his maternal side, his mother's side. And when I, when I found out that he, he was, you know, one-eighth American, um, <laughs> it, uh, and he didn't know this. I mean, we had lunch one day, and I said, oh, by the way, I have to tell you, your, your great-grandfather fought in the American Civil War. Wow. <laughs> and he, well, his first words were, no shit. <laughs> um, and then I told him, um, and that he's, he vaguely knew that his great-grandmother was um, Austrian and that she had been a student of Franz Liszt in, wow. in the 19th century and that he, he didn't know his great-grandfather was an American uh, Civil War fighting for the Union, actually. Um, and I sort of got a bit carried away because it gave me a romantic <laughs> idea that when... Nick sings some of the songs he sings. They they sound American. Yes. They yeah, sound yeah, yeah. It, very it, much. I, I can't think of. Well, somebody's going to correct me on this. I'm sure there aren't many English guitar strummers who can do the American thing like Nick. In fact, right. you'd be there. Maybe there's a handful of others, mm-hmm. but Nick Nick's got that down. He instinctively writes songs and sings songs that sound like they come from the south in my that's my view you know so i kind of wish somebody would ask me (laughs) (laughs) Um, how the hell did you find that out Um, hard research slog right (laughs) pardon was it hard research slog right yeah it took me about i I, it, it distracted me i mean i started this in Although I'd interviewed Nick a lot previously, sleeve notes, I've done articles for magazines. I started, I decided to start a book in 2011. And um, uh, one of my first interviews was Dave Edmonds, actually. Uh, but um, when in 2012, I think, I started to discover this, this completely distracted me and, and occupied me for maybe two years <laughs> as I pieced, I pieced it together. And the other fascinating thing is that he's one of his great uncles by marriage invented the jukebox. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, what are the chances? Yes. I mean, this guy wasn't a blood relative. He, this guy who invented the jukebox, uh, an American man, um, he was married to Nick's great-grandmother's sister. So wow. he would, what is that? He would be like a uncle or whatever i can't great, work it out great, in my head uncle yeah 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 by marriage, by marriage. Yeah. um and and this guy and nick's great-grandfather would hang out to get a lot together in new york in the 1870s and 1880s and invent stuff they they were well this man was a true inventor he invented quite a lot of interesting things not only the jukebox but um nick's great-grandfather fancied himself as an inventor as well but he wasn't particularly good at it but <laughs> they they but well if people are interested you can read the story because it's in the back of the book it's like right, it's worth appendix. reading yeah, yeah when you get this book and you must get this book you do need to read yes. the appendix and read the uh, yeah. all the information about nick's family because it's it's well documented and it's it's spectacular it is. it's really it's surprising really and interesting i'll be long gone daddy when you find my note but just for the record, this is what I wrote. I'm relocating to a foreign shore. You won't have me to kick around no more. You can't make me stay. I'm leaving today. It's anchors away. I'm shipping out to Tokyo Bay. Um, so, Will, as we uh, kind of wrap things up here, um, I personally, I read a lot of rock biographies. Yes, so do I. And this is a great book. Oh, obviously, we love it. And Thank you. I have to mention that you have a book about Ian Dury as well. That's yeah. Just 
really something. It's it's a really well put together book. Um, Thank you. They're among the best I've read. I have not read your Canvey Island book yet. It's I'm, on the list. I'm hoping it'll get uh, get uh, re- republished because it's a little expensive yeah. right now. <laughs> well, because because the print because the uh, physical uh, version uh, is out of print. Right. Um, yeah, you see it going on Amazon for like two hundred bucks. Right. Yeah, but we saw it going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it stayed. I, yeah. A couple of years ago, I created a Kindle version of it. Oh. Okay. Uh, we'll, and we'll you can get it that. on Amazon as a Kindle. Okay. Um, it's not quite the same as having the book, but it, yeah. it does fill the gap until mm-hmm. I get round to updating and putting it out out again, which is a future uh, project of mine. Um, but I've got a lot of other things going on at the moment. But that, sure. that's anything you can share? <laughs> well, no, I don't know. Just stuff, <laughs> writing stuff, you know. Come on, I Will, mean, you can tell us. <laughs> I don't think. I, I don't think. Um, I mean, I'm getting on in years, and mm-hmm. you start to um, you start to value your time probably mm-hmm. differently than you did when you were 45, sure. and. Um, my biographies, well, I say my, I've only done two, really. They do take me seven or eight years. So if I started another one now, I'd be um, very old uh, when it was finished. And there's no one else I'm really that fascinated by to want okay. to okay. Uh, do a biography, to be honest. All right. Um, That's fair. But the kind of music that you appear to like and I like I mean a lot of that stuff that came out of England in the late 70s like Squeeze for example mm-hmm. like Elvis Costello although there are plenty of Elvis Costello books out yeah. there as we know there um, isn't really uh, a good one though <laughs> <laughs> well it was his own his autobiography it's yeah there were some good stories but it wasn't, it wasn't um, like one of your books <laughs> oh dear that's, uh, that's very kind of it. Um, I, I guess you know, I really did. Graham Parker fascinates me. Uh-huh. Yes, I mean, yes. I'm very, very keen on Graham and mm-hmm. his music. Um, he would be somebody. Um, but right now, no plans to do another biography. But I read, I read plenty of music biographies myself. I got a wall full of them here. You know, well, uh, some, some of your favourites. Um, well, I like. Um, well, let me just pick a few here. I'm looking at them on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob Dylan's Chronicles, which is, a, I guess, mm-hmm. is an autobiography, was a great book. Right. Um, uh, Sylvie Simmons' Leonard Cohen book, I thought was very good. Wow. I'm not a huge Leonard Cohen fan, but I thought mm-hmm. it was a really good book. Um, uh, oh, God, there's loads of them here. Yes. Um, just... I mean, some really obscure ones. Uh, uh-huh. a, there was a great book once about Commander Code in his Lost Planet Airman. I, that right. was a great book. Okay. Um, and uh, Chris, uh, Chris Salovitz's Joe Strummer biography. Oh, I yes. thought that was really good. That was um, a There's a very good Brian Jones uh, biography um, uh, by Paul Trinker called Sympathy for the Devil. These are the kind okay. of books I read. Uh, yes. Neil Young, Shaky, Neil Young's biography. Right. I like that. Yeah, that's the stuff I read. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up now. Well, we've been speaking. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Will Birch, the amazing author and musician and producer. and Drummer, lyricist. All about good at everything guy. And, uh, and, and, and super mensch for, yes, for, for talking to two folks in the Carolinas. Yes. From <laughs> so we England. appreciate you talking with us, Will, in your book. Uh, it's called Cruel to be Kind. The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. It's available now. It is a must-have. Yes. Um, you must get this book. And uh, we appreciate you talking with us, Will. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Adrian. It's been great speaking with you. And I hope uh, hope you've got everything you need there for a uh-huh. podcast. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. And we'll be in touch. Thank okay. you very much yeah. indeed. To learn more about the artists and recordings we just talked about, visit our website at zubrecords.com and click on the Singles Going Steady icon. You'll also find links to the persons, places, and things we recommend and much more. You can find episodes of Singles Going Steady on our website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Singles Going Steady is brought to you by the power and majesty of Zub Records. Zub Zub Records. Records. Smart Smart sounds sounds for sharp sharp people. people.